I worked as a park ranger in northern Alaska for years, from when I was in my early 20s until my mid-30s. At first, when I took the job, I was trying to escape, but over time, I learned to love it. The endless wilderness, the snow-capped mountains, the muffled way, everything sounded during blizzards. With no light pollution, the stars up there looked like tiny chips of diamond. And during the winter, the northern lights roll in, twisting and shimmering in strange, alien colors. But a few years ago, things got much worse. People up here have started to go missing at an alarming rate. And I started having strange experiences around the park and the nature preserve. One of the strangest parts of my story started on a freezing dark night in 2018. I was on a snowmobile out in a terrible blizzard. The conditions were nearly to the point of being impassable. The snow was falling so thick and fast that it looked like a moving, shimmering wall of white on all sides of me. Another ranger, a huge, lumbering man named Aces Acosta, pulled up behind me on a second snowmobile. I looked at him, standing six foot six with majestic peaks stretching up into the night sky, and thought about what a great picture this would make. As I was looking around, I saw the faint tracks in the snow. Ace's snowmobile lights were pointed in their direction, and I had been standing almost on top of them without realizing it, which is fairly easy to do when a few inches of snow are falling every hour. At first, I thought it was the frozen tracks of an injured animal. I saw the drops of blood soaked into the superficial ice first. Following their direction with my eyes, I realized there were footprints pressed into the frozen crust, leading away from me and towards the flat stretch of the tundra. I squinted, getting down on my knees and leaning inwards. I didn't want to trample the tracks. I quickly realized I was looking at human footprints, naked human footprints. But who would be out here in December in 40-degree winds without shoes? They would die rapidly out here, just for me to drive across the tundra on a snowmobile required me to wear three jackets, long johns, snow pants, thick jeans, a ski mask, and multiple layers of socks and gloves with hand warmers. I wore special water, proof boots with composite toes that wouldn't freeze like steel toes. And despite all of this, I was still cold. I moved forward and saw handprints mixed in with the footprints, all of them bloody. The ice was thick enough to slice open human hands and feet, undoubtedly. The logical conclusion was unshakable. Someone had crawled through here, maybe naked, on all fours, and their frozen body would be somewhere up ahead. I sighed, turning to Acosta. He still stood in the same position, his face covered in a red scarf, with only his eyes showing. I saw one ice-covered eyebrow raise questioningly. I think we got us a body somewhere nearby, I said, getting back on my snowmobile and starting it. He did the same. What kind of freaked, out-tweaker would be walking around here without clothes on? Ace asked in his deep baritone. Man, I need a hit of whatever that guy's on. I've got two sweaters and two winter jackets on, and I'm still cold. Hey, Kelton. Hey, what do you say? He started elbowing me jokingly. I frowned, not responding. Ace always had a smart Alec remark. He was next to me when I was interviewed for this job originally down at the recruitment center in Washington State. 
The old lady doing the interviewing was a bloodless, angry-looking specimen of a woman with huge glasses that magnified her eyes twice over. She spat out each of the questions like a drill sergeant talking to fresh meat in the army. Are you a member of any organized religion? She had asked brusquely. Ace shook his head. No, ma'am. But I am a member of a disorganized religion, he said. We call ourselves the servants of the old ones. We're waiting for the ancient reptilian gods at the bottom of the ocean to awaken. So far, however, they haven't responded to any of our texts. I thought about this as I revved the engine twice, a sign that I was about to pull off and that he should stay close. We took off, going slow and following the tracks as close as possible without destroying them. But the tracks just kept going, the bloodstains seeming to grow fainter as we moved forward. And strangely enough, the distance between the hand and footprints also started to get longer, as if someone were running on all fours and speeding up. We were nearing the beginning of the forest of evergreens, when I saw a white flash just up ahead. The thing that ran from us was humanoid, but I knew at once that it was no person. It ran on hands and feet, totally naked, its skin a pale, lifeless white color. It turned its head towards the lights of the snowmoils briefly. I saw a hairless creature with skin that clung tightly to its simian body, its lips permanently pulled back from its mouth as if they were eaten away. Underneath it showed mottled black and red gums covered in thick, clotted blood. Its nose appeared as little more than two irregular holes, and its eyes. They reflected the light of the snowmobiles, like the eyes of a raccoon or a possum. They were huge and sunken in its starving, monstrous face, and I saw what was leaving the bloody trails. The creature was, as far as I could tell, totally uninjured, in its permanently grinning mouth, between rows of crooked, sharp, blood-stained teeth, it held the body of an infant. The baby's head lolled from side to side, the neck seemingly broken and blood dripped constantly from its mouth and nose. It had deep puncture marks in its tiny parka, half rings of teeth marks that must have broken its ribs. The blood stains on the snow were becoming fainter because the heart was no longer pumping in the body of the one leaving them. I had a loaded rifle inside my snowmobile and kept a 12-gauge shotgun slung around my back, mostly in case of bear or moose attack. I always kept the shotgun loaded with slugs, which were, in my experience, the most versatile ammunition for stopping any large animal. The 308 might take down a polar bear, at least with a good headshot, or it might just piss it off on a bad day. But a shotgun slug to the head or heart will stop any bear or moose in its tracks. Of course, this was no polar bear ahead of me. For all I knew, it was something far worse. I looked down at the speedometer to see I was going 20 miles an hour, in the dark, in a blizzard. And yet this strange humanoid creature was still losing us, its seemingly never-ending store of energy still sending it forward at a superhuman speed. Its pale, bony legs and arms pumped back and forth so fast that they were just a blur. It kept its sharp teeth around the nape of the dead infant's neck like a mother cat carrying its young. I kept one hand on the steering wheel while trying to free the strap of my shotgun over my head. I slowed down below twenty, and the creature responded by going even faster. It was making a break for the mountain forest that started only a few hundred feet away. I got the gun free and quickly stopped the snowmobile and raised it. I centered the sights, taking a deep breath to steady myself, and fired. 
I missed, though I don't know by how much. Shotguns had the drawback of being significantly less accurate at further distances than the rifle. But by the time I got the 308 out, I knew the creature would have long since disappeared in the thick brush and trees. By this point, Ace had also stopped an open fire, but the creature had already gone. God damn! Ace screamed. That was one fast motherfucker. I can't believe he got away after all that. I heaved a deep sigh. I think we better go find out where he got that baby from, I said. We might have a lot more corpses on our hands than we realize. We found a radio in the snowmobile and messaged in what had happened, or at least the basic gist of it. I left out the part about naked half-human abominations and said that it was an unknown animal. There wasn't much law enforcement up in these parts because, hell, there were barely any people. The rangers as well as fish and wildlife agents regularly worked with the police officers in small towns, at least those that had police officers. Dozens of the local tribal villages had no police at all. These people would come to forest rangers and fish and wildlife agents most of all, and were always some of the county's friendliest and most helpful residents. By the time we got back to the original blood-stained footprints, the snow had covered up the tracks completely. However, based on the direction that the creature had been going, and where the tracks had come from, I thought I knew where it might have started. Following the path in a nearly straight line led to the Lutna Peak trailer park. Ace and I drove off at max speed across the rolling hills and flat plains, the snow coming faster and heavier now. They say Eskimos have dozens of words for snow, and after being a ranger up here, I can say I've seen every variation of it a thousand times. This was turning into the kind that was wet with huge flakes and tended to stick to everything. We would probably have to find refuge soon, especially if it got any heavier. I heard the screaming before I saw the commotion. As we came around the sharp right turn where the dirt road turned into the trailer park, I saw dozens of people out, flitting like gnats around one of the trailers at the back corner of the park. All of the lights were on in that particular trailer, and I saw one woman comforting another who was bent over and crying. Even though almost everyone knew us here, I pulled out my badge, identifying me as a federal law enforcement officer. Up here, all the rangers were technically federal agents, allowed to carry guns and make arrests like typical police, except we were licensed under the Department of the Interior rather than under state law enforcement agencies. I ran into the trailer and after one long glance around the place, I knew there was no need to call for any ambulances. Ace followed close behind me, his heavy, thudding footsteps shaking the trailer slightly as he ascended the steps. We said nothing for a long moment. The entire family was dead. There was blood. Everywhere. Even spotting the ceilings. Most of it had frozen in the cold, and I wondered how long the door had been left open. Body parts were scattered across the floor, an arm in the corner of the room, a head standing up on the kitchen counter, even a random tooth embedded into the sheetrock. The savagery was brutal, and the amount of strength required to carry out such an attack must have been extraordinary. I think we're going to need a lot more people on this than just me and you, he said. I nodded, already bone-tired, and with so much more work to do tonight before I could go to sleep. We phoned both state and federal authorities in the area. 
Since much of the land was tribally owned, we had to deal with multiple branches. Eventually, we got sea out there in the middle of a snowstorm, though they had to come from over three hours away. We just secured the scene while we waited, constantly being brought into neighboring trailers where townsfolk would tell us the latest gossip. They also brought us hot coffee and tried to milk us for any information we might have, as they usually did in such situations. No, Maggie. Honest. Ace was saying to one old lady wrapped up in an ancient fur coat, I don't know any more about it than you do. You can be sure that you'd know if I did. By that point, police cars were slowly pulling in, one by one. Ace and I told them a simplified version of the night's events, said goodnight, and left the scene to them. I went home and took a scalding hot shower, trying to force the night's coldness out of my bone. Then I slept deeply, though I had nightmares of that creature's face turning to me, holding a dead baby in its mouth and marking me with its motionless, reflective eyes. I didn't know it then, but that would be the last time I would sleep in a bed for many days. The state police assigned us an officer the next day, stating they wanted an official representative of their interests involved in the case. It was, by this point, a fairly high-priority case. We didn't even have many assaults or robberies up here. Less likely murders, and the murder of an entire family really stirred up the locals. The fact that the seaside techs couldn't make heads or tails of it made it even worse. They hadn't even agreed on whether it was done by humans or animals or a combination of the two, like men with fighting dogs who went berserk. With no leads, they wanted us to go back to where we had seen the creature the previous night and see what we could find. The police officer who would be tagging us, a woman named Officer Melinda Jansen, had the look of someone who just started a new job and doesn't realize how terrible it is yet. She was all bright-eyed and bushy, tailed, and when she shook my hand, she nearly crushed the bones together under her iron grip. I saw Ace wince slightly when he shook her hand, too. When she turned her back, he looked at me with one eyebrow raised, as if he were saying, What can you do? It didn't take us long to find the spot from the previous night. When we got close to the forest where the creature disappeared, I saw a branch that had been hit by a shotgun blast and knew we were right on the money. In the daytime, I saw that there was a slight, curving trail through the trees here, maybe an old deer trail. It was just wide enough for us to take our snowmobiles through if we went slow. Occasionally, I would have to get off being in the lead and move large branches that lay across the path. But overall, it was faster going than I had expected. The trail followed across the top of a rolling hill, went down, and then spiraled up around a mountain. We were high now, at least 7,000 feet above sea level, and the view went for hundreds of miles. It was breathtaking. Seeing the frozen white landscape below us, mountains lining one horizon, and the Arctic Ocean on another. A couple hundred feet ahead of us, however, the trail just stopped. I saw an opening in the mountain. Slowly bringing my snowmobile up, I looked into it and saw what looked like naturally formed stone hallways. The halls sloped down at a steep angle without stairs. An eerie silence radiated from the gradually thickening darkness. The other two snowmobiles cut out right behind mine, and Officer Jansen came walking up, flicking on her lead headlamp. Immediately, I saw a strip of light blue cloth. I walked forward, 
bending down to confirm what I had already suspected. That this was a piece of the missing infant's clothing. That looks like more than enough cause to me. Let's do this, Jansen said. I'd like to be back before sundown. She kept walking without waiting for confirmation. Ace and I slung on our packs and turned on our headlamps. I tried using the radios and sat phone to share our location, but neither was working. The bright artificial lights showed that the natural stone walls of the hall just kept on descending into the mountain. A warm breeze blew past me, an acrid sulfuric smell following in its wake. This is just a body recovery mission at this point, I whispered to Ace, giving Officer Jansen a wide space so I could talk. So why are we potentially risking our lives here? We should be waiting for backup. We both know that the infant is dead and has been for a while. You know what I think, Ace whispered conspiratorially, before a low shriek stopped us all in our tracks and ended conversation. I never did get to hear what he thought. By this point, it was much warmer than it had been outside, and I had the urge to start stripping off jackets. Shrieking had intensified and was now being answered by dozens of others that surrounded further away in the stone halls. Officer Jansen had pulled out her gun, which I saw with some astonishment was a 454 Ruger, a large-caliber gun with good stopping power. I saw enough magazines strapped around her hips to decimate an entire herd of buffalo. I also pulled off my shotgun, making sure it was filled with lead slugs. Do you have any idea what we're up against? I asked her. Ace was right behind us, his shotgun already cocked and loaded. The muzzle pointed downwards. I was sweating heavily by this point. The air in the tunnel just kept getting warmer. It felt like I was walking into a sauna. Thin clouds of mist and droplets of hot condensation clung to the smooth granite ceilings. The hole continued to descend at the same steep rate, but now I could see something at the bottom. Light. Not much more than you, really, Officer Jansen said with a slight sneer. My only advice is to shoot first and ask questions later. Kill anything that moves. This place has taken a lot of people already, people who are too fat and slow to watch their own backs. I squinted as I examined the lights. They seemed to emanate from some sort of organism growing on the stone surface. It wasn't electrical lights, and it certainly wasn't natural sunlight. It glowed like the lights of millions of fireflies, a purplish-blue color that painted the granite floors and walls in a totally different light. We were walking as quietly as possible by this point, but I still hadn't seen anyone. We reached the bottom of the stone halls where strange mushrooms glowed in the darkness, their mycelium giving off that black light color everywhere as it stretched across the threshold of the opening. I turned off my lead, seeing my comrades do the same, then poked my head through, looking back and forth. I saw more of those creatures from before, their lips missing, their skin pale, their eyes huge and rabid. They constantly twisted and snapped their heads to the left or right, as if hearing something only they could perceive. Two were dragging an elk that had been mutilated and torn down the middle. Another was dragging an old man's dead body forward by the upraised legs. I saw the old man's head was missing, his wrinkled hands trailing behind the body. I watched where all this activity was headed, then I gasped. A huge insectile monster sat lazily against the stone walls these creatures brought it meat. 
The monster was so fat that I wasn't even sure it could stand up. It had a blood, red, chitinous exterior with a hood, red, chitinous exterior with a hood like a cobra's that extended around its head. Its teeth trembled together constantly as it shoved more gory offerings into its mouth, sending blood gushing forwards in thick clotted rivulets that dripped down its chin. Its long, thin arms had sharp, knife-like digits, and its six legs branched like those of a praying mantis splayed out on each side of its body, shining a dark red color in the strange light of the chamber. Its belly stretched far in front of its body, and with horror, I saw it drop a cluster of eggs, each as big as a dog. Their surfaces writhed and trembled, looking tight and ready to burst at any moment. Creatures that fed and cared for this monster rushed over, dragging the eggs to the corner of the warm chamber. I saw that there were dozens more of them over there, and that some had already hatched. Whatever that monster was, it had already given birth, and now those things were walking around totally free to kill anything or anyone they wanted. This was the nightmare that took place years ago when I was a park ranger. I still remember standing there, feeling dissociated and strange, as I looked down on the eerie scene below us. Oh, God in heaven, Ace whispered in the purple light of the cave. Before us, the bright red hand shot forward and grabbed the body of the headless man. It lifted the corpse up with ease. I watched the beast open its jaw wide enough to throw the corpse in without difficulty. Snapping its mouth shut, it sprayed more blood down its face and across the eroded stone floor in front of it. Dark red stains emanated out across the floor for twenty feet in front of the creature, looking like clotted Rorschach ink blots in the fetid cave. We need to go deeper in, Jansen said, looking from me to Ace with a serious frown on her face. What are you insane? Ace said. Do you want to die? There could be thousands of those things down there. But the decision was quickly taken out of our hands as we heard screaming. A young, high-pitched voice. We all looked down at once and saw the white humanoid mutants dragging out a young boy. One that I recognized from pictures on the trailer park crime scene wall. He had cuts and scrapes all over him and was shivering, either from hypothermia or fear or both. But he was alive. His eyes were huge as he was dragged forward by his small hands towards the great red insectile beast in the corner. God damn it, I whispered, looking at Ace and Jansen. Okay, Jansen and I will take point positions. Ace, you guard the rear. We will form a triangle and start shooting. When one reloads, the other two cover. Ace, you'll need to swing back and periodically check our backs to make sure there's no ambush. Now let's go. They didn't question my command. Neither of them had time to. To save the boy, we needed to move immediately. We started down the smooth stone floors, only a couple hundred feet away from unknown numbers of enemies. I fired first, aiming my shotgun at the group of mutants nearest to me as quickly as I could pull the trigger. The first shot blew the chest of one open, kept going, hit another in the leg, and ended up blowing chips of stone from the wall behind them. I saw it all, in slow motion, my adrenaline pumping, 
and the heightened awareness of battle taking hold. The second shot hit the nearest one in the head. It exploded like a shattering vase, bits of blood and bone flying out in all directions. I saw the one holding the boy drop as Jansen hit it with a shot from the Ruger. It was an amazing shot, missing the boy entirely and taking off the head of the creature. It looked fairly risky, especially with a pistol, but I could tell she had experience in marksmanship. And yet, personally, I would never have tried from that distance, with a hostage in tow, with anything less than a rifle. The chance of blowing the hostage's head off seemed far too great. It made me wonder about her impulse control and risk, taking mindset. Who was this woman after all? The white mutant continued holding the boy's hands for a second, standing on its feet as its mutilated, half-destroyed head kept pumping sprays of blood in the air. Then it fell, crumpling slowly to the floor. The black beast in the corner appeared enraged by this point. It gave off a banshee wail that sent out powerful blasts of sound, rising and falling in distinct waves. It sounded like a choked, much deeper version of a steam whistle. Instinctually, I wanted to drop my gun and cover my ears to stop the painful shrieking. It seemed even louder than the gunshots, something I would have said was impossible before hearing it. And worse than all that, the beast was rising to its feet. While it looked fat and slow, and while I knew it to be full of eggs since we had seen it lay some, it turned out to be much faster than all that would have suggested. It had a huge blood-red belly, but it moved with the grace and speed of a cat. It rose on its six legs, its upper body sticking up from the lower insectile carapace like some sort of demented centaur. Its branched legs skittered forward in a centipede-like motion that gave me an instinctive revulsion, but it wasn't running towards us. It was moving away from the gunfire towards a huge entrance. As it went, it grabbed the boy with its inhumanly long, thin arms. I feared it would open its giant maw and pop him inside, and that would be the last we would ever see of him. But it didn't. It disappeared, making that shrieking steam whistle cry as it went. My ears were ringing so badly from all the gunshots, the echoes of the gunshots, and the cries of the beasts, that I was afraid I had gone deaf for a moment. Ace stood in front of me, moving his lips, but I couldn't tell what the hell he was saying. What? I screamed. My hearing slowly returned. We have to follow the boy, he said. We can't lose his trail. I knew he was right. The existence of a live hostage had totally changed the situation. We had no backup coming and no way to call for help. We would have to take him ourselves. It seemed an insane proposition, and the creatures here vastly outnumbered us. But letting a hostage die was not an option. Yeah, no shit, I said glumly. I sighed deeply. We had more ammo in the snowmobiles. I had filled my pockets with extra slugs, but I hadn't expected this. Ace was likely in a similar situation. We faced the choice of either going back and trying to grab as much ammo as we could, and possibly losing the hostage, or going forward and running the risk of using up all our ammo. Which was, after all, a risk either way, since we had no idea how many of those things lived in the tunnels. I saw the same thoughts running through Ace's mind as he looked back towards the snowmobiles, then forward to the tunnels. Let's go, I said, motioning for us to go forwards. 
We can't risk losing the trail. We'll put breadcrumbs down as we go, metaphorically. Slice off tiny pieces of a jacket or something so we can find our way back. Based on how many of those goddamn things I saw, he responded, I think we'll be able to just follow the empty shell casings alone. Jensen had already started running forwards by this point, and we had to sprint to keep up. We ran past the eggs, some empty and others throbbing within a life. I saw the one nearest to me pulsating with blood. Red veins, a thin, luminous skin revealing the silhouette of a monstrous insectoid creature inside. It writhed and squirmed, twisting its six legs and pushing against the membrane that kept it entombed within the egg from time to time. Soon I knew it would push through. How many others had already hatched? How long had this been going on? I had a feeling that we would soon find out. We sprinted into the tunnel, turning on our lead headlamps as we went. Jansen was in the lead, then Ace, then me at the rear. Periodically I checked our backs, but nothing seemed to be following us. Not yet, anyways. All the commotion was in front of us. That creature was still shrieking, though the sound was much more muffled and distant now. To my horror, I heard dozens of responses from all around, deeper in various tunnels that branched off from the main chamber or from this one. Some sounded very far away and barely audible, but others seemed much, much closer. I also heard the cries for help from the young boy, though these two grew fainter. We tried running faster, but what could a human's two legs do against that skittering monstrosity's six legs? Not much, I thought to myself. The tunnel looked empty. That strange mold grew everywhere here as well. We barely even needed the leads to see. Though it had so many curves and branches that it was difficult to see far anyways. Every hundred feet or so, another wall appeared, always curving to the left or the right. As we ran, I saw glimmers of what looked like red eyes from some of the smaller side tunnels. But whenever I turned to look, they were gone. It was the same with those who might have followed us. I thought I saw glimpses of a long, white hand or a lipless face for a moment. But when I pointed the gun, the thing had slunk back into the shadows or deeper into one of the endless branching tunnels that disappeared around corners in an instant. The shrieking of the beasts had faded into the distance, and an eerie silence descended like a fog. We had all stopped by this point at an intersection of the cave system. One tunnel went off to the left at a right angle, the other to the right at a right angle, and then we had the larger main tunnel we were following that extended in front of and behind us. Luckily, we hadn't yet deviated from the main tunnel, so finding our way back should be relatively easy. It felt substantially hotter down here as well. We had descended deeper into the chain of mountains that ran northwards parallel to the Arctic Ocean. I had opened all of my jackets and taken off my hat, but I still felt boiling hot. I could tell the other two did as well. Trickles of sweat beaded their faces, and they were ripping off layers of clothing. They threw a couple jackets on the ground, not wanting to carry them for God knows how long. If we made it out of here, I thought they might regret it. But after miles of walking, I too threw a couple jackets on the ground and left them. After all, when we came back this way to return to the snowmobile, we could just grab them again. Except, of course... We never did come back that way. God damn, Ace said. Well, we've lost the kid. Let's go back and report. 
We should be able to find a signal with the SAT. Phone somewhere in the area. I wish we had. But at that moment, circumstances beyond our control sealed our fate. Started with a small tremble, almost imperceptible. I looked around at the glowing purplish walls and the strange mossy molds that covered everything. Some of them lost connection with the walls as the shaking grew stronger. As soon as their root system stopped touching the stone and earth, the round cluster of detached mold would instantly go dark. Their black light illuminations shut off like a switch when it stopped being anchored to the stone tunnel. Earthquake, I shouted, but Jansen and Ace clearly already knew. We looked around for someplace safe. We ducked into a side tunnel where the ground was more stable. Behind us rocks smashed into the ground, knocked out of place after who knows how many years. It became a continuous cacophony. We ran faster, and finally something behind us seemed to let go. The entire main tunnel sounded like it was collapsing. Some small pebbles and rocks dislodged and hit me in the face and chest as I ran but it became increasingly clear that whatever fault line had slipped had been further back, running underneath the main northwards tunnel. It sounded like tons of dirt and stone had collapsed. And then, as suddenly as it had started, it stopped. A few small aftershocks shook the area slightly, but as a whole, it seemed like we were safe. We all had our lead headlamps on as we made our way back to the main tunnel, hoping there was a way out. We had to get to the snowmobiles, and more importantly, we needed help. There might be more people imprisoned or taken hostage down here for all I knew. Is everyone okay? I said. Fine, Jansen said, wiping dirt off her face. A small trickle of blood ran down her forehead. Jesus, the main tunnel! Ace said, walking slowly out of the small tunnel we had sought refuge in. Look at it. I came up behind him unsurprised to see tons of rock spilling out towards us, with smaller boulders and pebbles nearest in huge pieces, as tall as a man appearing further in. We're going to need to find another way back, I said. We can't go back, Jansen said. There's a hostage in here. And how do you expect us to find him? Ace asked. These tunnels could go for a hundred miles in every direction for all we know. I felt another tremble below our feet as a small aftershock passed through the area sending a few smaller stones rolling and tumbling around us. But we had come this far after all. We're going to get that kid back, I said. We've already come this far, and the way back is blocked anyways. We're going to need to find another way out. There has to be other entrances to this cave system, but what I really thought about was the horror stories I had heard about the Paris catacombs, how occasionally someone would find themselves lost in them. Countless random twists and turns through the darkness below the city combined with many miles of tunnels meant that very few who found themselves alone and lost down there made it back. They often starved or died from dehydration, their bones inevitably mixing with the hundreds of thousands of others resting eternally under the bustling cityscape above. After resting, we started moving forwards together. Morale felt low, and even Ace looked sullen and thoughtful. We continued on in the main tunnel, hoping that the boy still lived somewhere in these endless tunnels. But we hadn't heard a single sound from the creatures in so long that I began to give up hope. The tunnel ahead of us started to open up, and massive growths of the luminescent moles began infesting the floor and walls. 
growing in shapes like ant mounds that reached nearly up to my neck, a soft sound began to echo back. It sounded like the babbling of a subterranean brook. Running forward, I shone the light into the stream and felt relieved to see it was full of pure, clean water. I began to greedily shove handfuls of water in my mouth. I saw Ace and Jensen follow my lead. After all the running and fighting, I felt hungry, thirsty and tired. Looking up, I saw there was a primitive bridge against the stream made of a slab of granite. And beyond, I saw something that took my breath away. There was a cathedral down here, or at least something close to it. Hundreds of eggs stretched across the right and left sides of the chamber, like pews in a church. They were organized in lines with a ten-foot-wide empty path leading further in. Hundreds of feet above us, sharp stalactites hung from the ceiling, glowing in the purplish light of the mold who climbed the walls in thin streamers. At the end of the open chamber, a few hundred feet away, I saw a carving that stretched to the ceiling. Hewn from pure stone, it showed one of those insectile, egg-laying monsters showed it standing up straight, with its thin, branching arms stretched out to the ceiling above it, its oval eyes wide, and its huge mouth stretched open wide to show its countless predator's teeth. Below it, I saw one of the white humanoid creatures. This one wore a coarse brown robe, the first one of its kind I had ever seen clothed. It was so still, I thought it was part of the carving at first that they had created a religious icon showing these creatures serving their great and horrible masters. But then it turned towards us. We all raised our guns at once. Freeze, Jansen cried. I saw her finger tighten around the trigger. Don't, I said. It's unarmed. Wait. I felt eyes on me from all around me, but when I turned to check our backs, I saw nothing. We started walking forwards towards the robed mutant. As we got closer to the front, I saw more and more of the eggs appeared empty. The ones in the back all had life inside, life that pushed against the thin membranes and whose legs skittered eerily in the amniotic fluid they breathed. Why should we let it live? Jansen objected angrily under her breath as we moved forward in unison. These bastards killed that family, and who knows how many others. When I think back to all the unsolved missing persons cases in this county, I knew what she meant. Same thought had occurred to me. How many people had these creatures killed? The mutant in the brown robe stood there, his lipless mouth forming a cold sneer as he looked me up and down. Its strange eyes seemed to bulge from its emaciated face. When I got close enough, I realized they had an almost albino look to them with blood, red irises that faded towards pink as they neared the center. The pupils seemed to glow, reflecting the eerie light of the mold. I didn't know what to do next. The creature in front of me spoke first, however. They are. Ah, gods, he croaked, from the depth of his voice and the cast of his body. I had figured out that this was probably a male among his species. The way he spoke reminded me of how deaf people sometimes sounded when they spoke. The words sounded strange, with random pauses and changes in cadence making it hard to understand at times. But it was definitely English. Who are you? I asked. 
What is this place? He shook his head, pointing to the huge carving behind him. Gods, he said. We feed, and they protect. They haven't done a very good job so far, Ace whispered in my ear. Those huge bugs just ran screaming when we started shooting. I ignored this. What are you, I asked, hoping for an actual response. This time, I got one. We are... The keepers, he said slowly, thoughtfully, looking up at the huge carving. And these are necrovores. He shook his head again, an expression crossing his face that looked very human. Was it regret, fear, and they're hungry? So hungry. As if on cue, I heard the skittering of any legs behind me. Spinning around quickly, I saw that while we had been distracted... Some of what he called the necrovores had surrounded us in a semicircle, cutting off any retreat. These looked much smaller than the original one we had seen, and I assumed they were likely juveniles. Behind you! I screamed to my team. But they already heard what I had. I raised my shotgun, firing a slug into the nearest one's curved red face. It went between its eyes, and for a moment I could see a clear hole all the way through behind it, to the stone wall surrounding us. Then it crumpled, its legs shaking spasmodically in its death throes, its arms moving back and forth in small arcs quickly, as if it had a seizure in its last dying moments. Dozens of them appeared, and the speed at which they ran at us looked eerie. All I would see was a red blur and the flash of many branching legs, and an instant later... I would see one of those abominations flying through the air with jaws opened and claws raised forwards. The guns fired quickly, dropping a dozen in the space of a few seconds and slowing the ones behind enough for us to have a chance. But they skittered so fast, like huge spiders. Their many legs shuffled and cracked against the stone floors and they leapt at us. I dodged one, sidestepping it and shooting it in the head with a shotgun blast. Its dark red eyes looked at me from its angular face as a giant exit wound exploded from the back of its mouth. Shrieking, it fell. Ace wasn't so lucky. One jumped at him, slashing with its sharp claws and unhinging its jaw. In a blur, I saw it grab his left arm, slicing through the cloth and skin easily. A spray of blood shot into the air. Ace! No! I screamed chambering another round and firing. I hit the beast in the center of its body. It gurgled and spit as blood poured out of its body. It tried to get up and keep fighting, but its legs gave out underneath it, and I watched it for a moment as it lay on the floor, kicking and dying. Ace had reloaded and turned, taking down another one with the direct shot. Jansen dropped the last two, and then suddenly, everything was quiet again. Only the ringing in my ears from all the gunfire broke it. I ran over to Ace, looking at his arm. He winced, pulling back his sleeve. I saw a deep gouge mark, the slice cutting nearly to the bone. Blood spurted out in time with his heartbeat, but it didn't look like any arteries had been severed. We quickly applied pressure and a tourniquet, and after many minutes of resting and attending to his wound, the bleeding slowed. We sat among all the dead necrovores, the strange priest had disappeared in the fighting, slinking away in one of the tunnels behind the carving. We need to find food and water, I said. There may be more underground streams if we're lucky, but food. What are we going to do? 
cook a necrovore. I looked at the corpse of the nearest one disdainfully as I spoke. If we have to, Jansen said, I'm not dying down here. Not unless I have to. That's funny. Ace said, looking at his injured arm, because you were the one who acted all gung. Hoda come down here in the first place. Even before we saw the boy, who, by the way, we have seen no sign of, this has all been a wild goose chase. An insane, wild goose chase to God knows where. Probably death, or the seventh circle of hell, maybe, I said jokingly, but no one smiled. We continued walking. Eventually, we heard a soft babbling and found a small stream running through a side tunnel. We cleaned Ace's wound as best as we could, drinking as much of the clean, clear water as possible, but hunger began affecting me. I wondered if we really would have to try eating those strange red beasts if it came down to it. Maybe they'd taste like lobster, I thought to myself with a wry smile. But our problems only got worse from there. Ace's wound looked terrible. Red, inflamed patches of skin rose all around the slice, and the veins seemed to be discolored as they led away from it. Nothing to worry about, Ace said, smiling. It's only a flesh wound. But in fact, I did worry. And it got worse as we went on. After a couple more hours of walking, it started to really smell, and I saw puss and black spots beginning to spread on his arm. I had never seen an infection set in so rapidly and spread so quickly before. I wondered what kind of exotic, alien bacteria might be on those creatures, and shuddered. We rested, finding an empty side tunnel and laying down. Ace and I were far away from Jansen, who had wandered away down the tunnel a few hundred feet, maybe to use the bathroom in private. I don't trust her, Ace whispered. Neither do I, I said. I think she knows more than she lets on. The whole thing seems weird, Ace said, looking down at his arm for the hundredth time, frowning and wincing. But I think you might find you need her. I'm certainly not in much of a condition to help you. After resting for a while, we got back up and started on down the tunnel again. The endless growths of mold still giving us enough illumination to see ahead without our lead headlamps. I tried to conserve the battery as much as possible. Ace quickly grew so sick that he staggered, bending over and retching occasionally. Sweat poured down his forehead, and he swayed on his feet whenever he stood up straight. I looked at his wound and gasped. I thought about the medical terms I had heard. Suppuration, the wound discharging pus, draining the fluids of dying tissue and leaking it all over his skin. Necrosis, the living flesh, the living flesh being eaten as the man watches. None of these words covered the true horror of what we saw. Ace walked for as long as he could, but as we went on, I could smell the wound more and more. Soon it became all I could smell. It was nauseating, like raw meat rotting on a wet summer day, combined with a strange fetid bacterial odor. It drove me crazy, made me want to vomit. I couldn't imagine what Ace felt in those last dark hours. I had once seen a movie called Requiem for a Dream, where the heroin addict's arm had gotten infected. Streaks of black and purple spread across his skin, leading back to his heart, the central point of the infection rotting, 
a central point of the infection rot his body as he watched it eat him alive. I had never seen anything like it, at least until this moment. Looking at the wound on his arm, the red inflamed veins bulging out, the black rotting skin in the center, the flesh separating and falling off. It tore at the limits of my sanity. I had to look away, but when I closed my eyes, I still saw it, and I always smelled it. I'm dying, he said. We'll get you help, I said, not believing it. He shook his head. I can't do this anymore. I can't take that smell, the smell of my body decaying. I can feel my skin separating. I can feel the pus running out. I can feel my body rotting from the inside. I can see it. He began to cry. Just go. Leave me with the shotgun and one slug. I'm not going on. No, no, I started to say. But Jansen interrupted. He's right, she said. He is dying. Even if we had medical attention at this point, I don't know if they could save him. The sepsis has spread and the limb needs to be amputated. But we have no antibiotics, not even a single capsule of penicillin. He needs immediate intravenous antibiotics to have any chance. Leave me the gun, he said. I did. I dropped the shotgun next to him, putting a lead slug carefully on the ground next to it. He laid down, his face pale and sweaty, his eyes wide and terrified. Now go. You shouldn't have to see this. You don't have to do this, I said, making one last feeble attempt to change his mind. He shook his head. I'm not afraid of dying, old friend. I'm not afraid of suicide. I know some of those Jesus freaks say it ruins your eternal soul or whatever, but I think we both know an infinite God. If he exists, probably doesn't give a damn. Every man owes a death, after all, and we'll all get there somehow. But at least I took down a lot of those damn necrovores in the end. Maybe that will be enough to get me entrance into Valhalla. Do you think? I felt a tear creeping down my cheek. Blinking quickly, I brushed the tears away. I think you'll have a front row seat in Valhalla. Ace. Save me a seat. Take care, I said, knowing he could do nothing of the sort. Turning sadly, we walked away. And as Jensen and I went down the tunnel, I heard a single shot of a shotgun blast echoing from behind us. He's gone, I said slowly and sadly, the sound of the gunshot ringing through my head. Jensen shook her head, as if clearing it. We need to get out of here, she said, or we'll be joining him. We have no food, no guaranteed access to water, no medical treatment. We'll probably starve, but if anything happens, we might die much faster, I sighed. My stomach churned and felt tight. I was so hungry that it hurt. A dull pain arose in my midsection, a constant reminder that I hadn't eaten a meal in far too long. Starvation, I knew, could take at least a few weeks, especially if the person had some body fat and muscle before they began. And yet, with us walking dozens of miles beneath the earth in these caves, that optimistic projection of a few weeks until dying from starvation narrowed to significantly less. Just as bad and perhaps worse, I had run low on ammo. I felt in my pocket for more shotgun slugs. I counted seventeen left. I would keep one for myself in case I were facing some horrible slow death and needed a way out. This meant that, when we were inevitably attacked, I had only sixteen shots I could fire. These problems circled around my head over and over as we walked. 
Jansen spoke little. Her breathing sounded heavy, and her posture looked much more slumped than the gung. Ho, straight, backed woman I had first met. It looked to me like she was giving up hope. I tried to cheer her up. There must be dozens of exits in this place, I said. Think about it. Those white mutant humanoid things, the keepers, they're feeding those huge red beasts, which they call the necrovores, right? At least they're feeding them sometimes. I have a feeling that the necrovores could easily hunt for themselves. They're a clear apex predator. Perhaps the keepers just want to keep them secret, though. Get to the point, Jansen said. What about the exes? We have seen exactly one exit and entrance to this goddamn place. Okay, I said. The keepers have to be bringing in meat from multiple openings. It wouldn't make sense for them to just have one opening. The one we came in and then walk hundreds of miles under the ground. They presumably try to feed the necrovores in this stretch of tunnel as well. So they must be going up and out, hunting or stealing food or whatever, bringing it back. So you're saying that if we can find one and follow it, then maybe... Jansen began, but her words cut off quickly as a shriek came from behind us. I spun, raising my already loaded gun and snapping the safety off. The sleek, black Benelli shotgun felt like an extension of my body by this point. Until I ran out of bullets, that was, and it became just an expensive metal club. Jansen reacted as fast as myself, snapping on and led light to give us more illumination. The white light shot out, blinding me for a moment, in comparison to the dull, purplish light of the fungus that grew on the sides and walls of the tunnels. It looked like the sun itself. A massive red blur disappeared down the hall from behind us, its eerie cry reminiscent of a steam whistle receding with it. I looked around for more signs that we were being followed and stalked, but it looked empty behind us. We kept moving forwards, and the main tunnel ended, splitting into left and right corridors, both the same size and without any indication of which one to take. By this point, I had given up any hope of seeing the kidnapped boy again. I wasn't even sure I would survive. We went left and further up. The tunnel split again. We went left again, and eventually I smelled something new. Roasting meat, my stomach immediately began to flip and ache as the scent wafted through the tunnel. I smell food, I said quietly, trying to keep the excitement out of my voice. Food, meat, or oh, thank God... We walked forward side by side, going faster by this point. Even Jansen's eyes gleamed. I am so hungry I could eat one of those necrovores, he said. I bet they taste like chicken. They look more like lobsters, I said. Nice and red, with a thick shell. I bet if you boiled them alive and got a little melted butter. Suddenly, I found the tunnel blocked by a necrovore. I instinctively jumped and raised my gun almost firing straight into it. Then I saw that it had a bullet through the center of its chest. It looked dead, laying on its back with its dark red eyes staring up at the ceiling, its branching, insectile legs curled up in a pathetic way like a desiccated house spider. What the fuck? Jansen asked, her expression twisting into confusion. Who shot this one? You, I shrugged. It had to be one of us, I said. Perhaps the last time they attacked us, one of us hit one in the stomach and it ran off. Then once it got here. 
It finished dying from blood loss or organ failure or whatever took it out in the end. That would be my guess. Jansen had knelt beside the corpse of the necrovore, moving one of its stiff legs aside to get closer to its open mouth full of hundreds of sharp teeth. I saw her feeling around for something in her pocket. I have to use the bathroom. I lied. Now genuinely curious as to what kind of scheme Jansen was up to. I had had a feeling ever since I first met her that there was something more to her being here than just a state cop wanting to tag along with rangers. I walked down the tunnel, and when it began to curve, I pretended to move against the wall and start urinating. But I was watching Jansen. She reached into her inner coat pocket and took out a clear glass vial with a black top. Kneeling down in front of the necrovore, I saw her dip the vial in its mouth presumably to collect some of its bloody saliva, then screw on the top. I started walking back, and she quickly tucked the vial back into her inner coat pocket. Jensen quickly backed up a couple steps from the necrovore, changing her facial expression into the pale, indifferent look she had worn for what felt like days now. But the real Jensen was under there. I had seen it. I debated bringing up what I had seen, confronting her directly, but I decided against it. I would confront her when the time was right, but for now, survival seemed more important. We left the necrovore behind and began to go down the tunnel, towards the delicious smells of roasting meat that had grown much stronger now. Up ahead, I saw a ray of light shining into the cave. My heart soared. It was real sunlight, and that meant only one thing, an exit, I was going to run up ahead when I heard Jansen click the safety of her gun off, cock the hammer, and tell me two words. Don't move. She was only a few feet behind me. I still had my shotgun strapped around my shoulder, and I was looking forwards, away from her. She had all the advantages. I knew that most likely I was doomed and would die right here on the floor of a cave without my family ever knowing what happened. Take your shotgun and drop it on the floor, Slowly, Jensen said, If you turn, I will shoot you. I did as she asked. Keep looking away from me. Now I saw your expression when you first saw the necrovores at the entrance of the cave, and you didn't even look the slightest bit surprised. So I'm going to ask you one question, and one question only. Have you seen them before? Yes, I said softly, remembering. About half a year before the events with Ace and Jensen in the cave... I had been alone in my log cabin. I made a full pot of coffee, cleaned and oiled my guns, and decided to go shooting. After pouring a huge thermos of boiling hot coffee, I grabbed my Winchester 3030, a beautiful gun with a polished walnut stock. I headed outside, setting up targets to shoot. I had gone to the dump, grabbed an old air conditioner and a metal trash lid, and I set these up at different distances, because this was summer the air smelled fresh and clean. The nighttime had come, and with no pollution and no clouds, all of the stars in the sky seemed to radiate a bright, pure light. It seemed as if blue flames shot out of my gun for a split second when I fired in the darkness. I'd instantly hear the ping of metal as it connected with one of my targets. I'd gone on this way for a while when the crying and shrieking had started from the woods nearby. No one lived near me, so I instantly went on high alert. 
For a few seconds, I tried to convince myself it was just a fox or a fisher cat. But I had heard both, and it sounded different. This seemed much louder and almost synthetic. I reloaded my gun, stuffing an extra clip into my pocket, and began to follow the sounds. Then I heard a gunshot, then two, and the screaming grew louder. I sprinted ahead, dodging roots and rocks, moving between the evergreen and birch trees growing thick in this part of the forest. The insects had mostly fallen silent after the gunshots, and the wilderness had an eerie, silent quality to it now, as if everything in these woods were staying quiet so they could hear what happens next. And then I caught glimpses of them, two men and a red, insectile beast that stood over eight feet tall. The men looked panicked and certainly had no sharpshooting skills. They had emptied their clips from the look of it, but I only saw a couple small trails of blood on the insectoid creature, namely from shallow grooves that ran over the side of its chest and above one shoulder. It moved forward in a rage and used its razor-sharp fingers to slit the nearest man's throat. Then it moved on to the next man. I was running as fast as I could, trying to get within range to save the man's life. In horror, I watched the beast jerk its head forward, its mouth opening wide as its jaw disengaged and bit off the surviving man's legs at the knees. I screamed, no, and stopped running, looking through the sight and opening fire. I hit the red creature a few times in the head, right between its dark, staring eyes, and after a few seconds of screaming, it fell back. I ran forwards, going to the injured man and shaking him. What was that? I yelled at him. Who are you? What are you doing? He shook his head slowly, as if trying to clear it, then looked up at me. My name is Constantine, he said, in a thick accent. I am an agent for the FSB, an agent for my home country of Russia. I would not normally tell you this, but I am dying. That creature, he pointed at the huge red thing lying dead on the ground, has a bacteria in its body that has immense potential as a biological warfare agent. It can cause septic shock in any human, and most antibiotics have no effect. A millionth of a drop of what that creature has could kill a man, and when. The postmortem is done, it will look like just a runaway bacterial infection, something anyone could get. Thanks, I said, putting a bullet into his head. Then I buried the two Russian agents and the red creature in a single mass grave. The soft Alaskan soil covered them all quickly. No one would have access to any biological weapons from these creatures while I was alive. Not if I could help it. I told all this to Jansen. If that was her real name, trying to kill as much time as possible. My only hope was for some deus ex machina some sort of fortuitous savior who could stop her. Because, in my heart, I knew she would not let me live, no more than the Russian FSB agents would have let me live if they had succeeded in killing the Necrovore and knew I had seen. Jansen went pale, her face turning into a deep skull, and then she nodded. So... The Russians somehow heard about the necrovores, she said to herself. And now they want to take samples, just like us. 
Who are you with, really? I asked. I know you're no cop. I'm Kia, she said, smiling wide. I really do feel bad about this, but orders are orders. I was explicitly told that no witnesses should survive. The CIA wishes to take some necrovores alive and see if they can't be used as biological weapons in themselves, if released in an enemy country, for instance. But for now, even just the extremely powerful bacterium is enough. Goodbye, and I'm sorry. I closed my eyes, breathing fast. My time was up. I knew I would die now, shot in the back like a common criminal. But no shot came. Instead, I heard a surprised grunt of pain, and then a horrible, gurgling, spitting sound started. I turned my head slowly, wondering if this was some sort of trick, and then I saw it. Jansen stood there with her throat cut, a fountain of blood pouring down the front of her clothes. Her eyes looked amazed and surprised, as if she had just seen the world's greatest magic trick. And then she fell, her body landing hard on the stone floor of the tunnel. Behind her I saw Ace, his bloody folding knife held tightly in one trembling hand. His other hand looked black and dead, the fingers twisted strangely. Oh my God, Ace, I yelled in shock and bliss. I thought you were dead. Soon, he said, falling himself on top of Jensen's body. I ran over to him the smell of the rotting meat of his arm covering the entire area. But I was so happy I could hug him. How? I asked Ace. He looked up at me, his eyes watery and unfocused, and then he vomited up a stream of watered, down blood. It fell on the hand of Jensen. I was attacked, Ace said. That one single slug, I had to use it to shoot a necrovore that tried to ambush me immediately after you guys left. And then someone started cooking and I smelled meat. I had made my way slowly in the direction of the smell and found one of those white mutants roasting a deer on a fire. They found one of those white mutants roasting a deer on a fire. Had stores of food in one room. Mushrooms, ferns, meat and nuts. And it was huge. I hid behind a pile of deer skins, eating as much as I could, waiting to die, sipping some water that trickled down from the ceiling. And then I heard you and Jansen nearby. Your voices echoed. You scared away the white mutant, the keeper who was cooking. I heard Jansen's confession, and I killed her. He pointed to his arm. The black and purple rot had spread past his shoulder and begun to eat into his chest. I'm almost done. Almost done. Will you give me peace? Will you do the coup de grace? I nodded, putting a slug in the chamber. Ace looked up at me his eyes tearing up, his face reflecting the sadness and uncertainty deep within him. I'll tell every one of your bravery, old friend, I said, pointing the gun at his forehead and pulling the trigger. There was a splash of blood and gore, and then I was alone. I took all the ammo and the gun off of Jansen, which gave me nineteen rounds for the Ruger, and then I began to walk towards the sunlight I still saw streaming across the hallway praying for an exit. I turned into the room and saw what Ace had seen. A deer roasted over a dying fire, a pile of edible mushrooms on a deerskin in the corner, a pile of fiddleheads next to it, and a variety of edible herbs from the forest on the other side. Some dried, jerky, like meat, 
also lay on a huge flat rock under the sun. I saw with horrifying disappointment that the light came from a small hole in the ceiling, one where the smoke from the fire could escape. There was no way to get up there unless I could transform into a spider, and the hole seemed too small to crawl through anyway. But it still gave me hope. It meant I wasn't thousands of feet below the ground, and that a real exit might be right around the corner. If only there weren't so many branching caverns to get lost in, I thought. I ate well, and then took a deerskin and began to wrap up as much food as I could carry. It was undoubtedly the best meal of my life. After starving in the darkness for so long, even the most tasteless food seemed like ambrosia. I tied the deerskin to a long stick like a hobo going off to a train and, balancing it on my shoulder, went off by myself. I wandered for weeks, eating as little as I could from the food. I found another kitchen in which the keeper stored food on the second week, with elk meat and more dried mushrooms stored there, and took what I could. Cold mountain streams flowed through the caves periodically, giving me water to drink. And yet I found no exit, and though I caught glimpses of white hands or red shells behind me, the enemy seemed happy to simply stalk me and watch, until I neared the end that was. It came suddenly, a huge archway up ahead past a bend in the cavern. Because it was night, I didn't even realize at first what I saw. But the light of the moon looked so different from the dull, purplish light of the mold that I realized with ecstasy that I must be close to the end of this eternal cave. I started to run, and that was when the ambush was sprung. They came from everywhere. Keepers in coarse brown robes and flashes of red from the necrovores surrounding me. The necrovore spat and hissed while the keepers rambled in their strange, high-pitched, yammering language. I dropped my remaining food on the ground, seeing it spill out on the floor in slow motion as my adrenaline spiked. Then, in a blur, I had the Ruger 454 in my hand. I ran towards the door, emptying all six rounds at those necrovores closest to me. I aimed for their dark red eyes a technique which had worked well in previous battles. I tried to clog the tunnel with the corpses of those nearest, but the smaller ones behind writhed and wriggled past the twisted, bleeding bodies of their siblings. I was almost at the exit, however. I could feel the fresh air by this point. I felt hands grabbing at me from behind. Grabbing the Ruger, I began to pistol. Whip anything and everything nearer, eventually feeling the hands release after a couple seconds. One of them grabbed at the pistol and it fell to the floor. I had no time to pick it up. Now I had necrovores on each side of me, and they moved in a blur, their legs skittering forwards as their bodies twisted from side to side in hungry anticipation. Their mouths opened wide and their claws began to whip through the air as I grabbed the shotgun, opening fire. The first one, I blew off its hand. It shrieked, looking down as blood pumped out of the stump, then began to backpedal, knocking the necrovore behind it down. The second one jumped straight at me. Its huge maw opened wide. I could see down its sleek, wet throat. It aimed at my face, and I began to shoot blindly, hitting its open mouth three or four times. It fell to the floor a few inches from me, and I heard a click as the shotgun ran out of ammo. As I ran, I put my last bullets in the shotgun, shooting behind me and hitting a couple of those who would kill me. 
I felt in my pocket and realized I was now down to two bullets. I sprinted through the exit, grabbing for the very last rounds. I saw those creatures coming through the stone door, and after slamming a slug in the chamber, dropped a large necrovore at the threshold. It fell noiselessly, blocking the door to those behind him, and I ran. I ran for what felt like hours, until I saw a small curl of smoke up ahead. I found a small Eskimo village on the coastline. An elderly woman in a little shack opened the door. Someone in the town had a ham radio, which they used to call for help and get me evacuated. When I first got back and saw myself in a mirror, I was horrified. I had lost many pounds and looked thin and frail, my cheekbones sharp and angular, my haunted eyes sunken deep in my skeletal face. I could count every rib on my chest and my legs looked like sticks covered in skin. I didn't tell my boss the whole story or anyone else for that matter. I had been missing for weeks and mostly said I got lost in the tunnels when looking for a missing boy, which was true to an extent. I did not tell them about the necrovores, however, or the brave actions of Ace that saved my life. That was a story I kept to myself, until now.